are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening uh, with step number 15, which we've been spending uh, quite a bit of time with here over the past months. And uh, we're, But we're coming close to the end of it here this evening. And we are on page 151. And at the very bottom of the page, paragraph 76, and it's always, you know, John, as well as the other fathers, focus a lot upon the thoughts and how uh, particular temptations and then the passions that arise out of them form. And so in this first paragraph that we're looking at, you know, he's trying to help us think about where, where these kinds of thoughts that are tied to sensuality in particular uh, emerge for, for us. So again, paragraph 76 on 151. Some say that it is from thoughts of fornication that passions invade the body, but some affirm, on the contrary, that it is from the bodily senses that evil thoughts are born. The former say that if the mind had not gone before, the body would not have followed after. And the latter adduce the villainy of bodily passion in justification of their view, saying that often bad thoughts manage to enter into the heart as a result of a pleasant sight, or a touch of hand, or a smell of perfume, or hearing sweet voices. If anyone can do so in the Lord, let him explain this, for knowledge of this sort is extremely necessary and profitable for those living the active life discerningly. But for those practicing virtue and simplicity of heart, this is not of the least importance. For not all have knowledge, but neither do all have the blessed simplicity, which is the breastplate against the wiles of the evil spirit. So while John tells us it would be helpful to understand where these emerge, you know, do is it through our thoughts uh, that uh, arise from um, something uh, external or that is brought to mind, or is it through the body itself and through our senses that uh, certain thoughts emerge? Uh, what gives rise to this passion? And in the end, John tells us basically it's not important uh, to ask and uh, or to know. And uh, we see St. Paul do something similar in the scriptures where people were beginning to talk a lot about the nature of the resurrected body and what that would be like. And, you know, Paul at some point says, 
you know, it's enough uh, already that uh, to spend your time over overly speculating about the nature of that uh, is to take the focus off of where it needs to be, which is living a life. And I think John is saying something similar to here to us here, that uh, if somebody were able to explain this wonderful, and it would perhaps help us to discern things with a greater clarity, but in the end, it's simplicity that is the breastplate uh, and that protects us, that we uh, keep our focus on our thoughts and the movements of our heart, as well as the things that we expose ourselves to on a day-to-day -day basis, that we engage, uh, in other words, in the spiritual warfare as it is, and not to get caught up in the speculation uh, about the question that he put forward here. Uh, some, he says, just do not have even the ability uh, to engage in this kind of uh, speculation, and so it would only muddy the waters. And I think in general, that's just true for all of us. I think if we uh, get too tied up in the minutia of it, we can lose sight of what we simply need to do in the moment. And as we heard in the previous paragraph, uh, that moment can come very swiftly. Uh, if you, you remember, John speaks of a flick of the mind, that something comes to us in a moment, you know, almost like a flash of lightning, whether it's through a touch or uh, soft words or sweet, sweet smells or a thought that just comes from the depths of the unconscious. Uh, uh, we can be uh, drawn towards the temptation uh, and the passion can be stimulated. And so if it can happen that quickly, what's most important for us is the vigilance. And I think that's what we would want to take away from the, this paragraph. It goes on to say, some passions pass to the body from the soul and some do the opposite. The latter happens to people living in the world, but the former to those living in the monastic life because of the lack of outward stimulus. But about this, I will only say, thou shalt seek wisdom among evil men and shalt not find it. And so the predominant struggle for those living the solitary life is going to be with the thoughts and that they remove themselves from uh, you know, all of those things uh, that can be a physical source of temptation for, for them, uh, whereas those in the world are subject to, to those things constantly. Uh, the last phrase, though, is somewhat unusual. Thou shalt seek wisdom among evil men and shall not find it. That um, there are few, I think what John is saying here, that have engaged in this battle in such a way and with the level of asceticism and the level of vigilance, uh, there are a few that have engaged in it that can offer wisdom uh, that arises out of experience. And uh, so we cannot, uh, because of this fact that there are a few that offer us wisdom among men, that we cannot neglect what, is com what comes to us and what is gained through experiential knowledge, through the practice of vigilance, through watching our thoughts and living the simple life. And, uh, and so don't count on 
being able to receive uh, a kind of wisdom or counsel that draws you away from uh, this passion that because it's such a part of who we are and because we are in this constant state of receptivity and because we hold things in our imagination and memory that no matter what guidance we receive from someone, it's always going to be lacking in some sense and never compare with the knowledge of self and our weaknesses and where our weaknesses lie that comes through experience. And so you're not going to find what you need from others or even from a book, uh, which is a funny thing to say during a book study group. But in reality, it's true that uh, we gain the deepest grasp of what John and the fathers tell us by on a day-to-day basis entering into the struggle. And we might fall daily and have to repent and turn towards God. We might have to uh, humbly acknowledge the, the many ways that we are negligent. Uh, and he'll you know, get in again to, and we've already looked at uh, things such as fasting, but even s- sleep, and uh, or a lack of courage, cowardice in the spiritual battle. There are so many different things that can pull us back from engaging in the spiritual warfare uh, with all of our heart. And these things are learned over time and learned through humility, which is we've defined in the past as truthful living to look honestly in the fullness of the light at what is going on within our hearts, our weaknesses, and the ways that we can be negligent, and then to turn to God and to seek his strength. Number 78. When we have struggled much with this demon, the mate of clay, and driven it out of our heart, torturing it with the stone of fasting and the sword of humility, then this wretch, like some kind of worm, hides itself in our body and endeavors to defile us, tickling us into irrational and untimely movements. So the little phrase there, mate of the clay, that, you know, this is part of being a human being and having, again, uh, this constant state of receptivity to what's around us, but having uh, been made in such a way that we uh, have uh, sexual appetites that uh, no matter how we've tortured it through fasting and the other ascetic disciplines and humbled ourselves in the face of it, even when it seems to disappear for a a very long period of time, we have to see it like a worm uh, burrowing very deeply at times within us, and then uh, in an irrational way, in a way that we can't understand, it emerges again. And at a time that perhaps we did not expect it, that uh, perhaps we haven't struggled with it for a long period of time. And then suddenly something touches upon us, or we hear something, or something happens in our life that gives rise Uh, to the thoughts and the memories that stir up the passion once again. And so it's it's a rather stark image, a worm that hides itself in our body, Uh, but, uh, and one might say a negative image, 
but nonetheless, I think when we're speaking of the passions, you know, that which takes which, what is good and redirects it towards the, the self or self-satisfaction in a way contrary to the will of God, that's how it often will work. We are, you know, driven uh, until the moment that we enter into the grave, in particular by, by this passion. Paragraph 79, it is those who are subject to the demon of arrogance who especially suffer in this way, because as their hearts are no longer continually occupied with impure thoughts, they are prone to the passion of pride. And in order to be convinced of the truth of what has been said, when they have achieved a certain measure of stillness, let them discreetly examine themselves then they will certainly find that some thought is concealed in the depth of their heart, like a snake in dung, suggesting to them that they have made some progress in purity of heart by their own effort and zeal. Poor wretches, they do not think of what was said. What hast thou that thou didst receive as a free gift, either from God or by the cooperation and prayers of others? And so let them look into their own affairs and let them cast out of their heart with all speed the snake mentioned above, killing it by much humility, so that when they have got rid of it, they may in time be stripped of their clothing of skin and as chaste children sing to the Lord the triumphal hymn of purity. If only when they are stripped, they do not find themselves naked of that humility and freedom from malice, which is natural to children. And so the greater danger almost for us, John is telling us, is that we can reach a certain level of perceived sanctity or perceived freedom and uh, attribute it to our ascetic practices and our discipline in the spiritual life as a whole, uh, rather than acknowledging the fact that uh, all things come to us by the grace of God, or as he says, through the prayers and intercession of others, that there is a real danger that we, uh, even in the slightest way, begin to turn our focus and our attention back on ourselves. And it's especially dangerous in the spiritual life when we attribute uh, certain gifts that we've been given to ourselves and lose sight of God. And it's in particular, to the arrogant that this, this temptation comes, that uh, when one begins to judge others in their poverty and in their struggles and does not look at them uh, with compassion and mercy or with the realization that it's only by the, the grace of God that we are kept from the same things, that uh, immediately a person will, will find themselves mired in it once again. And, uh, and so John says, we, we are to strip ourselves uh, in the sense of casting off anything that's tied to self and self-will, self-esteem in the more negative sense of this, where we exalt ourselves above others, uh, any, any way that pulls our attention away from God. Uh, because with this str uh, struggle in particular, 
without humility, we're going to, to lose uh, the freedom from the passion that we had. Anthony writes, I wonder if worm means not the helpful compost bug, but it really the Anglo-Saxon worm, worm <laughs> or dragon. That's an interesting thought. I would, I'd have to look, uh, look at the Greek for that to see what he's speaking about. Uh, although uh, in either case, you know, I think it speaks to the struggle for us. You know, that which is hidden uh, is really quietly feasting upon, you know, that material within us that eventually will drive us once more uh, back to, to feast upon it. So, you know, as, as human beings, uh, the, that little saying from Proverbs is a, a dog returns to its vomit, so the sinner to his sin, that there is something so powerful about that observation that, you know, you see dogs sniffing, you know, the, th the things that are most, <laughs> you know, grotesque and out of a kind of curiosity. And as, as human beings, we can do the same thing. We find ourselves sniffing around, uh, whether it's out of curiosity or, or, or some baser attraction to it. Like a dog is not going to think to itself, ooh, that just came out of me. Why am I running over to sniff it or to taste it? Uh, but as human beings, you know, I think we often do this with our, our sins, that even though when we see it with clarity, with purity of heart, uh, we, we know it's, uh, it's ugliness and that it's not going to be something that nourishes us. And yet we can do the same thing that a dog does. We can run over thinking, ah, here's something to eat uh, without discerning. And again, that sort of brings us back to the importance of purity of heart. Without it, there is no discerning. And so we are constantly going to sniff around those things that can be harmful to us. Number 80, this demon, much more than any other, watches for critical moments. And when we are unable to pray bodily against it, then the unholy creature launches a special attack against us. And John is going to uh, unpack this a little bit for us, uh, but not making use of the whole self in this spiritual battle. When we're unable for one reason or another to fast or to make prostrations, uh, to pray at night, to stand while we pray, <clears throat> to humble the body. In other words, we become vulnerable then to these kinds of attacks. And, uh, and so these are critical moments. And uh, I think having that clear in our mind is important because so often we will see these moments emerge in our life where we become distracted or that our, we, our life becomes imbalanced. Uh, we become too busy. We incorporate too many things in our life that leads us to push our prayer out to the margins or to prevent us in the pray in the, uh, uh, from praying in the way that God would desire. 
And so we begin to uh, sort of cut down the time as well as the manner, uh, alter the manner in which we pray. And then this becomes the, the moment when we are pounced upon once again. Okay. So I won't go into too much detail, but because uh, John's going to unpack it for us, but uh, it's these moments, and especially as we will hear uh, again and again, both in this step and in the Evercatinos, uh, often when, you know, even after we receive, and especially after we receive the sacraments, or when we've been praying, or right after confession, you know, that we will uh, lose that focus. And uh, and then the next thing that we know, we're being drawn right back into it. Okay, paragraph 81. For those who have not yet obtained true prayer of the heart, violence in bodily prayer is of great help. I mean, stretching out the hands, beating the breast, sincere raising of the eyes to heaven, deep sighing, frequent prostrations. So interesting, some of these things that we, we may have never thought about uh, as being part of our spiritual life or something that would be of significance for us, uh, that stretching out the, the hands, whether in the form of the cross or towards heaven itself uh, or beating the breast, so uh, sort of this penitential action, uh, again, to, to bring our attention where we need it to be, uh, sincere raising of the eyes to heaven, so to be turning to God, again, through another sense, through our vision, and so, uh, you know, again, with, with our body seeking to direct ourselves toward God, even though we know that God dwells within this physical action uh, can have a way of uh, have an impact upon us in terms of where our thoughts go. Uh, deep sign. Uh, so this deep, uh, an expression of our yearning for God and what he alone can give us and for his protection. And then frequent prostrations. So in whatever form, either with the head from the waist or again, all the way down to the ground to humble ourselves bodily, physically before God, uh, so as to in involve the whole self in that battle and that spiritual warfare. But often they cannot do this owing to the presence of other people. And so the demons especially choose to attack them just at this very time. And as we have not yet the strength to resist them by firmness of mind and the invisible power of prayer, we yield to our enemies. So it's interesting, you know, that, that our minds can still be weak in that struggle with the thoughts that come upon us. And so exercising ourselves uh, uh, with uh, our body it, and involving again more of ourselves allows us uh, to engage our thoughts with a greater directness and greater strength. So physically beating the breast, you know, is this sign of repentance, uh, or again that sign, even this physical sign for God, uh, is a kind of cry from the heart for for His help 
uh, in our moment of need. Louise wrote, disgust and shame are useful emotions when we apply them onto our faults. Otherwise, we justify our faults, would you say? Yes, you know, I think uh, this is often true. I think shame can have uh, its negative forms or that pull us away from God or lead us into a kind of despair. But shame is often a powerful indicator that we have gone against our conscience or that we have pursued things that we know that are going to lead us into sin. And so shame can be something that gives way to repentance, uh, that leads us to turn toward God. And uh, again, this is why the fathers link uh, uh, in their language, sorrow and joy together, that sorrow arises out of the shame uh, but if it is true repentance, it's going to be something that turns us toward God, towards God, seeking his forgiveness, but also the grace to enter into the spiritual battle once again. And uh, I think Pope John Paul II in his Love and Responsibility has a whole section of the book on shame uh, that's beautifully written and uh, and so if you have the opportunity again, you know, to jot down a little note that this might be a good thing to look, uh, look to uh, as a means of strengthening this within us, a proper uh, understanding of it. Laura Lee writes, it seems to me that St. John Climacus, like other Desert Fathers, asked for very difficult mental balance between being uber humble while maintaining a healthy psychology. If you don't have a strong grip on your mental health, this ascetical lifestyle could trip you up or even take you down. Other than recommending a guide like an elder, any thoughts about how we can cautiously yet profitably practice asceticism? Well, I think I've talked often about the fact that asceticism isn't solely a spiritual reality. Um, Asceticism isn't purely a spiritual reality, that it's a human reality, that our exercising of ourselves, of our faculties, uh, and of our, our bodies uh, takes place in every aspect of our life. It's part of seeking to live our lives fully, uh, to become fully alive, and to seek to uh, excel in certain areas, especially that we've been drawn to, whether it's study, uh, musician, uh, music, art, athletics, we see this asceticism emerge. And so I always feel that the starting point for us should be there so that we don't, uh, because of the language of the fathers, make asceticism seem like, like it's an extreme thing. Because I think we've done this to the point that we've pushed asceticism out of the spiritual life as essential even though it has its place in every part of our society and culture and our lives. And, uh, and so having this balanced view begins with seeing, all right, this is part of our struggle, that we have to exercise our faith and take hold of the grace of, that God gives to us. And our asceticism, uh, as we see in the writings of the fathers, is to direct us toward God. 
and towards humility and, uh, you know, uber humble. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's because we've become so self-reliant or self-focused or individualistic that it seems uber humble, uh, the language. But I think in many ways, you know, what they want us to acknowledge is what we are made of. And, uh, and when what we are made of is touched by sin, that it requires uh, a, a discipline and more than the discipline, a profound reliance upon the grace of God. So profound humility. And so part of what keeps us from going off of the deep edge is keeping our focus upon Christ as the source of our strength and as the standard for us, that he is the model in all things, how we are to live and love and give ourselves in love. Uh, and it also an understanding that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. So we are not left alone in this uh, spiritual warfare, that God himself dwells within us and he's given us the means that we need to enter into it fully, the Holy Eucharist, uh, confession, the grace uh, of the sacraments, and then uh, the Holy Spirit strengthening us from moment to moment and also strengthening our prayer. And uh, you said, other than recommending an elder, uh, I think confession, frequent confession would be good, but always turning to the elders, which is something of the privilege of our time, that we have access to the writings of these elders like no other generation before us has had. And I think Ambrose has often brought this up. You know, there's a tendency that I have to generalize and to uh, lament uh, the state of things uh, in, our, in our day, especially I think uh, our becoming unmoored from the spiritual tradition. Uh, but, when we slow things down and look at it more broadly, we begin to see, well, all right, yes, there are these realities within the church where we don't have spiritual elders at hand or those who are well-versed in this, but God does not abandon us. And one of the ways that we see that he hasn't abandoned us is that he's made the fathers so accessible to us. And so daily we could sit at their feet uh, and just as a little reminder, you know, one of the more modern elders, uh, Paisius the Athenite, uh, as we've talked about, read only Isaac the Syrian, a paragraph of his writing every day for 25 years of his life, uh, because it was so rich and gave uh, what one author said, uh, the counsel that was necessary from one, for one to move from being a novice in the spiritual life to reaching the heights of contemplation. And so while we, we, we do want to be cautious and, uh, and we do want to foster this kind of discerning spirit. And so I think how we get there is listening to the, again, to the councils of the fathers that focus on purity of heart, which has been the thrust of this chapter and the step and so many of the things that we read in the Evergatinos, that the discernment arises from this purity where the impediments of the, the 
thoughts that move us away from God or the distorted attachments that we somehow uh, so often have have been removed so that we can see things clearly and avoid the extremes. Uh, I would read, if I were to just give one point, final point of counsel, it would be read John Cassian. Uh, I think among the, the fathers, his conferences are the most balanced in terms of how he wrote them. He wrote them for the Western reader. He had lived in Egypt with the monks there in order to bring the ideal of Eastern monasticism to the West. And uh, I think more than the others, he emphasizes the avoiding of the extremes so that we do not fall into despair, but we also don't fall into to negligence. Anthony writes, I learned something, I think, from a talk by a Maronite. It can be helpful to pray the Jesus prayer in another language. Sometimes that prevents thoughts in one's native tongue from arising in the mind. Uh, I've never heard that. Um, I suppose that uh, could, could work. Uh, in, in the sense of, uh, I find myself listening to the Jesus prayer being sung, either in English or in Russian. There's uh, 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 an artist, the last name is Lenk, L-E-N-K, who's recently produced uh, the sung version in both languages that is beautiful. So if you're in the car or something along those lines and having trouble focusing your attention to pick that up. And whether it's in Russian or English, it is equally is fruitful. I, I think simply praying it and praying it constantly and calling upon the name of Jesus is the most important thing for us. And we see it at the heart of the Eastern spirituality, the Jesus prayer. Uh, it is what gives us the strength that we need. Uh, Laura writes again, I need to remember that the fathers are talking to others already in the ascetic life. And then to remember toward everything toward God. Yes, you know, I think one of the reasons, again, we uh, approach these works in this fashion is that the understanding of things that so many of the authors that we are reading were writing specifically to monks. And so their language is often reflective of the fact that they're, they've embraced uh, the life of obedience. They've been living in the monastery. And John Climacus's work in particular was written at the request of an abbot from a, a neighboring monastery. Uh, but we want to hold on uh, to the fact that they did not see a separate spirituality for those living in the world and those living in the monastery. Uh, it would change the way that it is lived out, uh, but we still all struggle with the passions and with our thoughts and uh, with our appetites, and we all struggle to pray and to pray with consistency and constancy. And so all of what we read here, I think it's our, our job to uh, wrestle with it and then to apply it and to gain that experiential knowledge of it. Sue and Mark write, could it be said that simply looking for opportunities to practice self-restraint for the love of God is a good place to start, especially in the area of our passions? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's a little book called The Way of the Ascetics 
written by a, a layman. Uh, what is his name? Uh, it's in my mind. Tito Coleander uh, is his name, The Way of the Ascetics. And he speaks about this exactly. Uh, it can be even the number of cups of coffee that we drink throughout the course of day. You know, this willingness to restrain our will in the smallest of things then gives us greater strength to restrain our will when uh, it has to do with things that are much more difficult for us. Okay. So uh, continuing along with paragraph 81. But often they cannot do this owing to the presence of other people. And so the demons especially choose to attack them just at this time. And as we have not yet the strength to resist them by firmness of mind uh, and an invisible prayer, power of prayer, we yield to the enemies. If possible, go apart for a brief space, hide for a while in some secret place, raise on high the eyes of your soul if you can, but if not, your bodily eyes. Hold your arms motionless in the form of a cross in order to shame and conquer your Amalek by this sign. Cry to him who is mighty to save, not with cleverly spun phrases, but in humble words, preferably making this your prelude. Have mercy on me, for I am weak. Then you will know by experience the power of the Most High, and with invisible help, you will invisibly drive away the invisible ones. He who accustoms himself to wage war in this way will soon be able to put his enemies to flight solely by spiritual means. For the latter is a recompense from God to doers of the former, and rightly so. And so even sort of getting back to some of the things that we, we have already talked about, that there, we do not need to have anxiety about this, that if we maintain this simplicity of mind and heart, and we find ourselves struggling to go off to a, a private place uh, where we can engage in these physical aspects of the, our asceticism, uh, and all the things that we talked about, the arms and the sign of the cross, raising our eyes to God, crying out to him, have mercy on me. And that we can be sure that God will respond to that zeal and that desire in our heart for him uh, by engaging in this kind of warfare. So that those who fight this battle on the physical level will eventually be brought to the, the point where we're able to fight it simply uh, within the mind and within our prayer, uh, where, where we're not as reliant upon the, the physical aspects of, of the ascetic life as we are on prayer itself. Uh, Laura Lee, yes, the way of the ascetics, that's right, by Tito Coleander. Number 82. In a gathering where I was, I noticed that an earnest brother was troubled by evil thoughts. As he could not find a suitable place for secret prayer, he went out as if compelled by natural necessity to the place set apart for that purpose, and there armed himself with vigorous prayer against the enemy. When I reproached him for choosing an indecent place, he replied, 
in an unclean place, I prayed to drive away unclean thoughts in order to be cleansed of all impurity. And so it's, this is not an unusual uh, experience. And I think, I don't know if it was Teresa of Avila or uh, Catherine of Siena in a similar way uh, was re re rebuked for praying as it were in the bathroom. Uh, but we pray where we have to. And if silence is the only place, if that's the only place you, you can find silence or to be away by yourself, if you're being afflicted, then so be it. Uh, and not to be anxious about it. Uh, I think, again, the evil one would want to put within our hearts such any kind of sensibility that would keep us from praying, uh, including the place where we find ourselves. And, uh, and so no, you know, if, if we're prevented because of the presence of others, then we would go where we need to. Number 83, all demons try to darken our mind and then they suggest what they like. For a long, as long as the mind does not shut its eyes, we shall not be robbed of our treasure. But the demon of fornication tries to do this much more than all the rest. Often after darkening our mind, which governs us, it urges and disposes us in the presence of people to do what only those who are out of their mind do. Then later, when the mind becomes sober, we are ashamed of our unholy acts, words, and gestures, not only before those who saw us, but also before ourselves, and we are amazed at our previous blindness. Often as a result of such reflection, men have desired from, I'm sorry, men have desisted from this evil. So uh, an interesting, uh, you know, John doesn't leave anything unexplored. And so he says, you know, we can find ourselves, you know, engaging, uh, in such a way that we dispose ourselves to the action <clears throat> of the evil one, <clears throat> excuse me, and find ourselves acting while in the presence of others as if we were out of our minds. So doing things, <clears throat> excuse me, that we never thought we would do, acting the fool, as it were, on a spiritual level, and so perhaps it's with humor. Let's take that as an example. Or maybe it's drinking to access, excess, which uh, leads us then to, to say and talk about things that would be inappropriate. And, uh, and, and so uh, let our guard down and then find ourselves doing things that horrify us and bring us to shame. And John says, well, you know, sometimes God allows that to happen to see the the uh, full that we can play at times uh, in the fullness of light, uh, in order then that we might avoid it in, in the future. That we would be humbled by that experience. That we are lessened in the eyes of others, in their esteem as well as in our own. Uh, because we have seen ourselves do something that uh, is completely inexplicable to us. 
that seem contrary to our sensibilities. And, uh, you know, I think probably most of us have had that experience in one form or another, uh, where we aren't acting like Christians. And uh, again, I think God allows us to see that precisely to reveal uh, our hypocrisy and in some way or another, and uh, through the shame of it to make us look at our life and ask ourselves, who is it that we're living for? And, uh, and so allows us to be exposed uh, in, in this kind of fashion. Any thought, thoughts or comments about this idea? Okay. Number 84, banish the enemy when he hinders you from prayer, worship, or vigil after you have committed sin. Remember him who said, yet because the soul tyrannized by predispositions gives me trouble, I will avenge her upon her enemies. So, you know, in the spiritual warfare, uh, we have to uh, engage in the battle fully and seek to strike down the enemy uh, without hesitation and making use fully of the faculty that the, the fathers talk about, uh, the insensitive faculty. When we see this emergence of the enemy, that we would act swiftly to cut off the head of the serpent. Uh, because to, to linger with it, to converse with it, is to open ourselves then uh, to being overcome by it. And, uh, and if you remember at one point, John saying, nobody likes to go up against a plucky fighter. And this is true with the demons as well, that if we engage in this spiritual battle with a ferocity and we engage in the spiritual, in the ascetic life with great discipline, where we humble the body uh, through fasting, then, uh, then you know, we're, they're not going to so easily or casually approach us if immediately they are going to be met uh, with, uh, with deep prayer, humility, or the ascetic life. Uh, Anthony writes, remember the demons don't play fair, which is absolutely true. You know, like in, in an inexhaustible knowledge, really, of the experience of human beings and where our weaknesses lie. And this is why we can't, uh, we can't be merciful, as it were, with these thoughts and even the jesus prayer at times is often used as an image of a, of a sword cutting away the temptations as they come to us and uh and so this can be particularly helpful i think with these kinds of thoughts uh that lead to these temptations to take up the prayer as if it's sweeping away uh, with a single stroke uh, the temptations and the thoughts that come to us, but to be vigilant in that practice. Okay, number 85. Who has conquered his body? He who has crushed his heart. 
And who has crushed his heart? He who has denied himself. For how can he not be crushed who has died to his own will? So the dying to self, self-will and self-love is this essential part of the spiritual life. And in this sense, it's not blasphemous as it were, even to visualize or to see ourselves as being crucified with Christ in this regard, you know, dying to self, self-will and to sin. And uh, there has to be this willingness that our hearts would be, you know, a, a broken and contrite heart God will not scorn, the scriptures tell us. And so when we are able to set aside our will and to deny ourselves, to know the poverty of that, uh, the times the sorrow of living in this world, it's then that uh, we, we come to experience a kind of freedom. Uh, okay, and Cindy wrote out, because the soul tormented by early, earlier sin is a burden to me, I will save it from its enemies. Right, so having the experience of the sin in the past and its burden, uh, then I will act quickly, as it were, to, to banish it. That our experience of having been wounded, which is going to take place in warfare, uh, should lead us then to strike back quickly in order to banish the enemy altogether. Uh, and I was reading, and I've mentioned here the last couple of times, Pope Shenouda's work, uh, The Life of Repentance and Purity. And he talks about Joshua failing to uh, banish uh, all the enemies from the land. And, uh, and it's precisely because of this, then, that the Israelites are afflicted uh, and and he says, for us in the spiritual life, we would read this as the being the cause for our backsliding in the faith, our hesitancy to strike down and banish the enemy, which is not only uh, the, the particular thought at the moment, but everything that gives rise to it. So it's the attachments that we have that lead to the sin, that lead to the temptation of the thoughts that we must strike down as well. And often we will uh, repent of the sin that we commit to act, but in subtle ways, we will hold on to our attachments uh, rather than banishing them, knowing that uh, they, they will lead us into sin. And so sometimes there is a kind of holy violence that is needed. Remembering the words of Christ, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out that there are certain things that we are going to have to cut out of our life uh, in order to prevent us from sinning. But better to do that, he says, you know, to enter into heaven with one eye or one hand than to enter into Gehenna with both. And, uh, and so, you know, recapturing this understanding of spiritual warfare, but even this kind of holy violence against the temptations and the evil ones. Again, understanding the malice of the enemy is important 
for us in this battle. Okay, number 86. There is a passionate person, more passionate than the passionate, and he will even confess his pollutions with pleasure and enjoyment. So there is a person, person or people who uh, take a kind of pleasure in the fact that they are driven by these passions and take a joy in that, you know, have become blinded so much uh, by them that they seem to be a good. And so not only do they take pleasure in them, but they hold them up before others as if they are to be admired, almost to be bragged about. Uh, and so it would be like an individual who's bragging about his uh, conquest, uh, you know, uh, sexual conquest to others, uh, as if this, you know, he should be given an award for it or praised for it by, by others, when uh, in reality, he's lost that capacity that John talked about uh, for shame, you know, to shame, to allow shame to pull him out of the mire of his sin. So individuals can get to that point where they, they no longer see it. And um, this is another way of describing, you know, in the scriptures, we, we hear of the unforgivable sin. <clears throat> and we've talked about this in some other groups before, uh, being closely tied to Jesus healing somebody on the Sabbath and being accused of doing this by the power of the evil one. So it's by Beelzebul that he cast out demons, uh, they say of him. And so they call what is good and from good God evil. And so there is this darkened vision, a vision that's been so darkened by pride that they can no longer see the he who is love and life before them, but can no longer discern between good or evil. And when this happens, then the capacity for repentance can be destroyed. And when there is that lack of possibility for repentance, uh, there's a great danger in the spiritual life uh, because it's only in this turning toward God, this humble acknowledgement of our sin that healing comes to us. Now God you know, will do everything, if it, even if it means turning our life upside down, to help us see that, but we can find ourselves in this very state that's described in this in this saying, you know, of being proud of our sins and making them a joke rather than seeing them for what they are. Number 87, unclean and shameful thoughts in the heart are generally produced by the deceiver of the heart, the demon of fornication, but temperance and disregard of them is the cure. But I do not know by what habit and rule of life I can bind this friend of mine and judge him by the example of the other passions. For before I can bind him, he is let loose. Before I can condemn him, I am reconciled to him. Before I can punish him, I bend down and pity him. How can I hate him 
whom by nature I habitually love? How can I get free of him with whom I am bound forever? How can I escape what will share my resurrection? How am I to make immortal what has received mortal, a mortal nature? What argument can I use to one who has the argument of nature on his side? So what a powerful paragraph. Uh, John puts it in perspective for us that unlike the other things that we struggle with, that we are united to the very uh, essence of things that give rise to the passion itself, our bodiliness, our, our senses, our desires and our needs. And this is something that is an essential part of who we are, that we carry with us all the way to the grave and that is destined to put on incorruption. Uh, and so how is it that we are able to bind it in such a way and uh, have it ordered in such a way that it is not what is guiding us? Uh, that how do we you know, make use of the reins, as it were, uh, to guide this beast in the direction where we want it to go rather than it either throwing us all together uh, for a fall or taking us off in the wrong direction altogether. And, uh, and so in this beautiful little way, I think he puts it into perspective. This is no small thing. And this is why the battle can be so fierce in beginning the spiritual life, because we begin that spiritual life in dealing with that which is closest to us. We begin with this struggle for purity of heart. And, uh, and that means uh, beginning to come, become vigilant of all of our senses and guarding the thoughts that become associated with our appetites and desires. And if we've been formed in such a way, and if the appetites tied to our bodiliness have never been restrained, uh, then the battle's going to be deep and fierce uh, perhaps for many years to come and will always remain with us, even if we have gained uh, some strength in that regard. Laura Lee writes, being proud of your sins is a sign of darkened conscience, I think. Yes. Uh, and a sensitive and refined conscience is a great help in getting a handle on troubling or persistent sins. This is what I'm particularly working on. Yes, I think to sensitize our conscience, uh, you know, that gift that God has given us that uh, rebukes us uh, when we've, we've turned away from him and to sensitize it in such a sense that uh, it rebukes us at the first movement away from God's will uh, uh, and that we get more and more responsive to it. Um, uh, but again, I think what he... Uh, says in this last paragraph is important because he calls it my friend, which uh, is, I think, an important way of describing it, that he, it's, it's hard to treat it as an enemy when it's part of who you are. And, uh, and I think this is why we're drawn back to it so often and allowed to take us where we are. And why people say, you know, why should I be worried about this? It's natural 
It's part of being a human being. And John would say, I'm right there with you. You're, you're right. You know, he's not going to argue with him. And he's saying, you know, it's so much a part of who we are. It's our best friend. And that's what makes it difficult, though, uh, to gain some control. Because that which is closest to us and most part of who we are is, can also, is going to be used, we can be sure, for our spiritual demise to draw us away from God. So, again, you know, far from having this negative anthropology, you know, the fathers have an honest view of who we are as human beings and an honest sense of the power of our desires as human beings. And it is that desire that we've often talked about that is the source of our capacity to love. We have this sense of incompleteness with which we are created. God has created us for himself and uh, to be loved and to be loved in the way that only he can uh, satisfy within us. And yet it's our tendency to seek that outside of him that becomes problematic for us. And, uh, and, you know, to tie those desires, I think, to our natural bodily appetites. Anthony writes, I think it is also, also means that you've entrusted yourself to God. He won't play legal games with that trust. And so the evil thoughts are not as awful upon us as the devil wants us to think. Sure, the devil is the deceiver and wants us to take full mortal sin culpability for what the demon sows. But the struggle is evidence God loves you and takes your whole self and situation into account. That's right, that, you know, the evil one wants to draw us into despair about this, and he often does. I think uh, when individuals struggle with the bodily sins or those tied to bodily appetites, he does give rise, try to give rise within the human heart to a kind of shame that leads to despair. Whereas I think hearing things as John writes about them here helps us to understand, no, this is part of the human condition. And it's part of our, our strength and our capacity to love. And that God has made us this way for a purpose. And that it's sin that undermines that. Uh, yet. Uh, you know, but it's in it's in and through the, these very things, though, that we can redirect ourselves toward him and the gifts that he desires to give us. So we can make use of the body in such a way as to draw our minds and our hearts to him. And that's what part of what John was describing earlier in this section. So beautifully, so beautiful, so psychologically astute and understanding the human nature so clearly. It's really a wonderful thing. Any final questions or comments? Eric writes, I found it immensely consoling that empirical evidence for exorcisms established that demons are extremely legalistic. The converse of this is that God is not. This is a great relief to me as we often tend to see God as legalistic and looking for gotchas. Right, I think so. And um, there is, uh, you know, this tendency 
that um, you know heresies often arise by overemphasizing some truth in, in such a way that it distorts things. And so taking something that we struggle with and that is very powerful uh, and but approaching it in this way as if if God as if God does not understand that and look upon it with compassion and is looking for ways to uh, to punish us or to shame us rather than to draw us back to himself. And so the evil one is always going to be the great accuser, in particular, after these falls into the bodily sins. How could you, you know, and how could you pray? How can you even look toward God, you know, to prevent us from trusting in that mercy in any way that he can? Uh, John writes, after you've read Father Mateo's Night of Adoration in the Home, it's impossible to think of God as a legalistic. He's complete, the complete opposite. Yes, and I, you know, I think that's what has been revealed to us. You know that, you know this, you know God who embraces uh, our humanity and embraces all of, all of its poverty and takes upon the poverty of our sin, uh, all of it, and the consequence of it, and so even in our, our battle with it, and even in our falls, Christ is there in order that we might not be in isolation in the struggle. And I think the evil one tries to, you know, darken our vision to such an extent that makes it seem as though God is very far from us and wants nothing to do with us when we are struggling with sin. And oftentimes the way a lot of Christians talk uh you know it it can we we can play that position of the evil one we can take the prerogative of god for ourselves that is to judge and uh in this we mimic the the evil one where our our thought should be there but the grace of god go on that we know that we are made of clay that this body of ours our friend is also, you know, something that we struggle with as well. Okay, so that brings us, uh, we're a little over time, so we'll stop there for the evening. We almost made it through step 15, uh, uh, but uh, we'll get on to the next one, which will be avarice uh, next, next week. Okay, so when we close, as always, with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Uh, Thanks be to God. God bless you, everybody. Have a wonderful week. Thank you, Father Abernathy. Have a good week. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Good night. All right. Good night. Night, Mom. Take care, everybody. Thanks very much, Father. Thank you, Father.